has been an emotional experience um, and it could happen again. You know, there's nothing to say that it won't happen again. Um, but I know that I can deal with it if some if that happened or something similar was to happen again. You know, I have that confidence that um, it, this just wasn't a stroke of fortune. This was something that we thought about in advance, and that's why we got away with it. On Thursday, the third of November last year. Two pilots in a light aircraft that had taken off from Jersey Airport were forced to ditch into the sea off the southeast of the island after the plane's single engine lost power. Despite the blustery conditions and heavy swell, they landed safely on the water, escaping to a life raft seconds before the aircraft sank beneath the waves. They were then rescued by the St Helier lifeboat, which had rushed to their aid after being alerted by air traffic control. Sharing the details of that dramatic incident for the first time, one of those pilots, Duncan Laney, joins me now to reflect on what went wrong with the aircraft, but also on what went right, which allowed both he and his co-pilot Paul Clifford to escape unharmed. So Duncan, tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, so um, I'm a pilot. I've been flying for about 22, 23 years. Um, always wanted to be a pilot and my inspiration really was watching the Jersey Air Show every year. Um, always fancied uh, flying and um, I joined the Air Cadets when I was at school, went to university and I was sponsored by the RAF. So that's how I got into flying and my flying career was pretty much for the first 17 years, all evolved in the RAF. Um, I kind of started um, just as an RAF pilot on the front line and then I got into instructing after about eight or nine years in the Air Force and my main role then was um, instructing fast jet pilots so they were basically learning to fly fast jets so what did you fly yourself originally i flew an aircraft called the tornado gr4 um, which went out of service about three or four years ago um, and that was a two-seat airplane where you had a pilot and a navigator um, and i actually brought one over to jersey um, when i was leaving the tornado force in 2010 um, so that's that was one of the highlights of my career and combat experience so um, a lot of my experience was in the middle east um, so mostly over Iraq um, and also Afghanistan, uh, latterly for that. And what do you do now? So I left the Air Force about seven or eight years ago and uh, I retrained to be a commercial pilot. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Um, initially on short haul flying, but now I'm a long haul pilot. And um, and tell me about the uh, the relationship with the Jersey Aero Club and, and the day itself. So you were obviously flying a, a, a single engine aircraft. How mm -hmm. did that come about? Yeah, so when I left the Air Force and I um, returned back to Jersey, um, I was approached by the Jersey Aero Club to see if I wanted to actually become one of the instructors there. Um, so I did a little bit of retraining to convert my previous experience into more relevant um, instructional role. And I've been doing that for about four or five years. Um, and that had developed it a little bit from just teaching people to do their private pilot's license to actually teaching and examining people who had their license but were wanting to do uh, a little bit more advanced flying. So the flight that we were doing on the 3rd of November was for an individual like that um, who was wanting to expand his instrument flying capabilities. So he's a sort of semi-experienced private pilot um, who's got an, um, a basic instrument rating but was just wanting to consolidate all those skills. So tell me about the day itself. Um, you flew off, was it in the morning? So we took off around about 1pm in the afternoon because in the morning the weather was horrendous. 
Um, it was probably about 35, 40 miles an hour winds and there's some thunderstorms around. So flying was cancelled in the morning and I reviewed it around about lunchtime. Um, and it was uh, a sort of big clearance. It was kind of blue skies, still breezy, um, but it was much more suitable for flying and, and it was all within limits for, for going to do the particular flight that we were going to do that day. And what was that? What were the objectives for the day? So we were going to do uh, an instrument departure where the pilot under training was going to fly the aircraft um, by sole reference to instruments um, and take it up to three or 4,000 feet to the south of Jersey, which is known as one of the training areas. And I was going to get him to do a few simple tasks leading into a few more developed and uh, interesting tasks just to get him working at a higher rate and increasing his capacity um, before we then came back towards the airport to fly an instrument approach simulating that we were in cloud. And so what was that about an hour sortie an hour? Yeah, it was planned to be about an hour and 15 minutes. And so you took off to the west, was it? So yeah, it took off on the westly facing runway. Uh, the wind was straight down the runway at Jersey, and it, and although it had been breezy, it was a, you know quite a nice day for flying. It was smooth, uh, and then once we were airborne, we headed out towards the south and climbed to an altitude of four thousand feet. And so, what happened next? So we did that for about 20, 30 minutes. Um, the gentleman I was with, I gave him some um, some simple tasks to do, and we developed it that just to increase his um, exposure. Um, and then we did a, a descent down from 4,000 feet to around about 2,000 feet, which was the level that air traffic control would want us at prior to making our approach. And we're just positioning the aircraft uh, to be ready to do that approach and doing a few checks and things uh, on the GPS system that we were going to use to conduct the approach. Um, and after about 30 to 45 seconds of level flight, that's when we felt the first indications that... Um, we were going to have some trouble with the engine. And, and just uh, what does that mean? Do you just uh, How did you get those indications? What, what, what was the feeling? Yeah, so it was kind of a bit of a feeling of being thrown forwards in the strap of the aircraft. Um, not a massive throw forwards, but there was a definite sense of deceleration. Um, and I've had in the past engines that have started coughing or spluttering, um, which you can diagnose as being a kind of a rough running engine, but it wasn't like that. The engine was smooth and it was still running. It just wasn't producing enough power, which what gave us that initial sort of sense of deceleration. And had you experienced like that, anything like that before? Um, not really a loss of power like that. I've had um, incidences where engines have completely stopped and I've been able to restart them. Um, but on this particular occasion, I've not had it where it's been like a loss of power, but the engine has still been running. And, and uh, was your first instance to, uh, to to contact air traffic control or did you try and remedy it there and then? Yeah, so um, the priorities of uh, flying are always fly, navigate, communicate. Uh, and I've been teaching that for a long period of time. So I was pleased to say that I managed to do what I always taught people to do. Um, and that was to fly the airplane first. So... That involved um, having a look around the cockpit to see if there was anything obvious that may be causing the issue. Um, and the gentleman I was with, he was fantastic. Uh, he was helping me out with that. We worked as a team to see if we could diagnose what the problem was. Uh, and we tried a few different things that we thought may be causing it, um, switch selections and things like that. But nothing was making the situation any better. And at this time, you were still decelerating? So that deceleration probably took about no more than about 20 or 30 seconds. Um, and then you get to a point where you've got to start descending because otherwise the aircraft will stall. 
Um, so we had begun to lose some altitude. Um, and then we had a reminder from air traffic control. We hadn't actually got around to telling them that we had a problem at that time. They contacted us to say, uh, we can see that you're descending below the level that you were supposed to clear to, um, which was a great interjection from them because it made us realise that, yes, that's now our priority to tell somebody external to the aircraft that something's wrong. And uh, so you, you did, and um, did they communicate what they were doing? Um, so initially we just said we got a few engine problems and I asked them to stand by and they, they did, they just stand by and then uh, maybe a minute or two later we actually formally declared an emergency. Um, as the emergency situation sort of developed um, we had some comforting words from them um, that they knew where we were, they had a really good idea where we would be in the water and I think they used the phrase that we were going to alert the emergency services so they know where you are. And did you know at this stage that you were likely going to have to ditch? Uh, at that point, I thought we probably might be able to get the engine back again because that has always happened to me. Um, I thought there must be something obvious that we're missing here. Uh, we've got time. You know, I thought, we, I thought we probably had about two minutes before we end up on the water. We've got time to resolve this. And, and I was still hopeful that we would be able to resolve it. At that point, we weren't quite in the... Right, we're going into the water point. And was there any, at any point, could you have got back to the airport? We were too far from Jersey. Um, so when I took control from the, um, the gentleman who had been flying, um, I just pointed the aircraft at the closest point of Jersey, which was the southeast corner, but it was about seven miles away. And from 2,000 feet, the maximum gliding distance is only about two and a half to three miles. Right. So... Even though the engine was producing a little bit of power, nowhere near enough to maintain level flight, there was no chance of a getting to the airport, but even getting closer to the uh, to the beaches, which would be the normal option to try and land on a beach. And have you uh, trained to ditch? Um, I've never physically trained to ditch the aircraft, but my time in the air force, I knew what was required in order to ditch and what the recommendations were. Um, and so you made the decision you're going to go down. Where did you, was there an element of choice as to, to where you went down and how did you coordinate with the emergency services? Because I know, you know that you obviously wanted to ditch as close as possible to help. Yeah, so we carried on going towards Jersey, which was the nearest piece of land. Um, obviously, we got that call out with air traffic control to alert people. Um, and then when we went probably through about three or 400 feet above the sea, that's when I knew, okay, we're not going to climb away from this that's the focus now, landing on the water. Um, so when you're ditching, you're looking for two things. You want to um, ideally land across the swell um, or you want to land into wind. And in an, an ideal situation, you'd be across the swell and into wind. As I said before, it was quite a windy day in the mm. morning and the swell was quite significant. Um, so that would have led me to land kind of north-south, pointing north towards Jersey. But the wind was still quite strong. So I had a choice um, of either flying north along the swell or turning to the west and landing towards wind. Um, and I thought that that's probably going to give us the best chance of survival, turning the aircraft um, on a westerly heading to land into wind. So that's what we did in the last couple of hundred feet. We probably turned a little bit to point it towards wind. And that enables you to land at the slowest possible airspeed, which makes it more survivable than obviously if you're landing with the wind behind you. And tell me about the landing itself. Was it short and abrupt? Yeah, it was um, It was a little bit like the film Sully, 
with uh, the gentleman that landed it on the Hudson That's I think, right. in 2009. And when I watched that film, which was great, by the way, I saw a big wave of water come over the cockpit in the aeroplane. And that's exactly what it was like for us. We had an impact onto the water with quite rapid deceleration and then a big surge of water that came over the canopy. Now, I think that we, it was just spray that came over. But the person I was with actually thought we may have even submerged into the water and come back out again. So we don't really know. But, um, yeah, we had that sort of enveloped feeling of being on the water before we then um, quickly, that all dissipated and we found ourselves floating. And what, and what speed do you think you were going when you when you hit the water? So I think we were landing at around about 60 miles an hour um, airspeed, but the wind was 20 miles an hour. So actually we were going about over the ground, which is the important thing, about 40 miles an hour. And so when you landed, you, you had this enveloped water and then you came to a stop. At that point, you must have looked around to make sure everyone was okay, your, your passenger was okay. That was very surreal. Um, we'd been going from in quite a noisy environment with the propeller still producing a bit of noise and everything going on to being engine completely stopped in the sea, kind of bobbing around a little bit. We looked across at each other, um, sort of like, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Brilliant. So, you know, thankfully we're both okay and we survived that, no problem. Now let's focus on phase two, which is getting out of the aeroplane before it sinks because I, I knew it was probably going to sink um, and get ourselves in the dinghy. So tell me where the dinghy was and what's the drill for, for escaping a, that, the, the aircraft and, and getting to, a, to the life raft? Yeah, so always have the dinghy accessible. Um, so for us, we were in a six-seater aeroplane. There was a couple of seats behind the, passenger se- uh, behind the pilot's seat, so that's where we kept it so we could easily reach it. Um, and then I had a little bag with me as well with a few survival aids, and that's where I had the radio beacon that I'll talk about in a bit. Um, so I got out the aeroplane first. Um, gentleman passed me the dinghy in my bag. Then I sort of helped him get out onto the wing. And then at that point, we inflated our life jackets, which we'd been wearing, which was normal um, routine. Um, and then I inflated the life raft. So it's just a handle. It's got a carbon dioxide... Um, cylinder which inflates really rapidly um a big smile on my face when it actually did inflate because um you know that would have been a little bit worse of a situation where i've had to already inflate it um and then i said well let's just wait on the wing of the airplane for as long as we can because that's the best place for us at the minute but we've got the dinghy ready to go should we need to get it in at short notice and the, as you say the plane was was you thought was likely to to sink the the planes don't float on water well they do but i mean this airplane was about 40 45 years old um and they're not perfectly watertight i think even a brand new airplane you know wouldn't be completely watertight there's always going to be some air that gets in um and it was quite rough as well so although water wasn't coming in and flooding into the cockpit we could see it coming into the cockpit so um I knew it was going to sink. I just didn't know it was going to sink as quickly as it did. And how long did it take to sink? I think it probably went down in about two and a half to three minutes after impact. Right. So you stepped into the life rod and watched it disappear under the waves. Exactly that. Yeah. I thought, well, we might be stood on the wing here for a little bit. And then we quickly looked at each other and said, no, we need to get in that life raft. And tell me a little bit about the swell so people can picture how rough the weather was that day. Yeah. I mean, um, it was rough, but it wasn't waves breaking over the aeroplane it was just a swell so it was rising up and down um, and when we got into the dinghy 
we were going up and down with a swell and we could see Jersey, but then when we were in the dips of the swell, we lost sight of it. Um, we could also see the coast of France. Um, so yeah, it was up and down. There's quite a lot of motion and every now and again, we'd get a bit of spray coming into the dinghy. Um, and and what were you saying to each other at, at that point was clearly there would have been a rush of adrenaline. Was it very functional? Were you just you know talking about how to survive and how to, to get back to land? Yeah, I was trying to rationalise it all. So obviously we've had this emotional event. Um, I was just trying to slow down our thought process to make sure you know, we were trying to do things correctly um, and I knew that it was going to take a while for people to come and get us because uh, it just doesn't happen immediately. So we were trying to think about, you know, what would be a reasonable length of time for us to be here before we start getting worried and panicky. Um, we're looking at the time and thinking about when it gets dark because I know at darkness it's going to be more difficult to find us and able then to sort of assure each other that you know, help would be on its way but we are going to expect it to be a certain amount of time and not to be distressed by that. And tell me about the beacon. So you were able to um, give a clear indication of where you were to the emergency services? Yeah, so we tried our mobile phones initially and obviously there was no signal. Um, so the other way of trying to communicate with people is via a radio. And we um, the handheld radio, unfortunately, uh, went down with the aeroplane. We didn't actually have time to get hold of that. Um, so I had my beacon and um, you just pull a pin on it and it starts broadcasting um, like a beeping noise that can be homed in on. Um, and it was the lifeboat crew that actually picked up the beacon as they were finding us and managed to home in on us quite quickly. So you did you couldn't communicate directly with the emergency services, but you, you set your beacon and presumably at some point you could see or hear the lifeboat inbound. Yeah, so it took about, I think, about 45 minutes, only about 45 minutes, although that felt like a lifetime in the dinghy. Um, and you have no way of knowing within that time whether someone's coming for you or not. Um, so it's just a case of uh, sitting and, and waiting and, um, you know, I don't want to use the word hoping, but I knew that people were coming to get us. We knew that we'd put that Mayday call out, that emergency call out on the... Um, on the air traffic control frequency and they'd responded to it. I knew the beacon was working and I knew that their satellites would broadcast our rough position and the emergency service would be able to find us when they were a bit closer. But also we saw some other aircraft going over the top of us and I thought to myself, that pattern that they're doing, they're not just randomly flying. It looks as though they're looking for us. And they might not see us because I know how difficult it can, it can be see, uh, to see people in the sea, but... At least I had assurance that people were looking for us. And tell me about when the lifeboat did arrive. What was the conversation when uh, the, the, the boat came alongside? Yeah, so as we saw the boat, we, you know, we, we actually, um, you know, start our spirits never really wavered that much. But we now had that sort of warm feeling that, yes, they know we're here. We're going to be we're going to be OK. We're going to be rescued. Uh, so, yes, that 45 minutes or so that we were waiting when you don't. You know, I had always. Um, I knew, always knew they were going to come and get us, but I didn't know how long it was going to be. Um, so when they actually, you can see them coming to get you, and it's a mighty relief. Yes. And tell me, uh, you know, the conversations on the way back with the, the lifeboat, was it just business as usual? Or were they, you know, obviously looking after you, keeping you warm and dry? Were you, um, I'm just wondering whether the the adrenaline was you know kind of difficult to to, to channel yeah i think our, i think once we got back onto once we got onto the life raft sorry once we got onto the lifeboat um 
we sort of and after about five minutes or so yeah you know that adrenaline dried uh, drained away a little bit and then I was just focusing on not trying to be sick because it was horrendous in that lifeboat um, and the the crew on board the lifeboat were fantastic they were looking after us um, they were really making sure that we were medically okay uh, you know taking our temperature and, and keeping a really close eye on us um, because although we hadn't actually been in the water there was water in the dinghy so we were cold um, we weren't hypothermic but we were cold and they you know I, I had a lot of comfort from them that they were looking after us and tell me about the process on shore obviously there's a process that gets gets enacted in order to find out what happened what what, what happened once you got on shore once you'd warmed up and, uh, and and found your feet again yeah so the first thing we did was had a bar of chocolate and a cup of tea which the RNO life very kindly provided to us um, and we had a little bit of discussion between us the two pilots just so we had the majority of the facts clear between us I mean there's a few minor things that we recollected differently um, but broadly you know the, the facts as it happens we were in agreement with and um, I sort of went home that evening and um, had a big flurry of texts from everybody of course um, and I just wrote down a few notes because I knew that there'd be an investigation and I wanted to get all the information correct because I also know that after a couple of days or two your recollection of the facts might change um, so the next morning I contacted the air accidents investigation branch located in uh, Farnborough in the UK um, and they, they called me back and, and I basically told them the same story that I'm telling you now um, they then decided how they were going to carry out an investigation you know, to try and find out what happened um, and they just wanted everything to be factual rather than any opinion or you know, they just wanted to be completely impartial with it. And where are we with that process? So they, um, they've now concluded the process and uh, they've told me that we may never know what caused the issue. Um, it, it could be um, a few things but Know, unless we were actually to recover the aircraft, um, the chances of finding out any further information are, are slim. And I think even if they were to recover the aircraft, that they're still not going to find exactly what caused it. Do you have any hunches? I think it was something to do with um, fuel delivery. Um, I don't know whether there was constriction of the fuel going into the engine uh, or whether there was um, some contaminant in the uh, pipes or whether there was a blockage or a leak or, or something like that that had just been caused by normal wear and tear. I, I don't know, but it, it, it struck me as it was something to do with the delivery of fuel to the engine. And looking back at your own actions that day, are you confident and comfortable that you did everything you did, you, everything you could? You got it right? Yeah, I think we did get it right. And um, the person I was flying with, uh, he, you know, he was the person that I wanted to be with in that particular incident because he was cool, calm and collected. And I think his personal experiences previously in his no uh, normal day job um, helped him do that. And we worked together as a team. You know, I didn't have to worry too much about his... Um, uh, his feelings he, he was taking care of me as well as his own uh, so that was the first thing is that you know we operated really well as a, as a team um, and we only had very short period of time in order to to deal with that situation and what had helped me is thinking about you know what might happen if I did need to ditch because it's always been a possibility flying around Jersey so I and I do that with all different emergencies that can possibly happen to me as I mentally sort of think about them when I'm sat in the crew room or having a cup of tea or I've got a quiet moment or something 
and obviously I'm trying to tell my students or you know, implore them to do that as well so that when an event does happen you can kind of just think back to what you were wanting to do in that situation rather than carry out a series of actions or drills that might not be appropriate so you know, it's just rehearsing what ifs and things that could happen beforehand and I think the Air Force had helped me become and think like that um, so yeah it was really my training and my thought process that I think about beforehand that enabled me to enact like I did and, and do you think that the experience has made you a better pilot? Oh, undoubtedly over the years yeah uh, I mean when I was much younger in the Air Force um, you know everything was a struggle I, I was never the best pilot going through training but it was all a case of working as hard as you possibly could preparing as much as you possibly could and I've just got used to acting like that in my life now that I always try and prepare for whatever I'm happening to do but mostly in flying um, and I know I've got to prepare and prepare and prepare to get the best possible performance out of it so you know that learning experience I had all those years ago has definitely helped me and and going back to work are you are you now identified as the man who's just ditched his plane have, have you uh, have you had some kudos as a result of the experience I've had quite a bit of ribbing from my colleagues yes absolutely um, and by quite a lot of interest as well you know they want me to um, to you know to spill the story and but not necessarily to talk about what happened with the airplane but to talk about you know the survival aspects of it you know so how did the aircraft handle when it was about to ditch or you know what was the survival aspects getting out of the airplane getting into the dinghy what was the rescue by the rnli like you know more focusing on those sort of survival elements and do you think you've learned something about yourself even if it's that you're good under pressure um you're always learning about yourself you know because I've had a few incidents in my past where I've had to operate under pressure and I've always wondered how that would be. But I've never been in the situation where I've not landed the aeroplane from having done a takeoff. So that's the first time I've never been able to bring the aeroplane back. Um, and that feeling, uh, you know, there's a bit of a guilt there because I wanted to make sure that I've done everything I possibly could to, you know, to try and bring the aeroplane back because putting it into the sea is no, you know, it's a big thing. Um, so I, I've always had I've had a bit of a reflection on that to make sure that I I did the right thing, uh, which I think I did. You know, um, I don't think there's anything that we significantly would have done differently. Um, but I think had I had there been something that I'd have done differently, I'd have wanted that to be a positive and for other people to learn from it. So um, we don't always get things right, but importantly in aviation, and I'm sure it's the same in a lot of ind other industries. You want to just tell the facts and tell things straight so that uh, great if you got things right, brilliant, but probably just as important if you didn't get it right and it gives other people an opportunity um, to learn from that. And has it dampened your appetite for flight at all? No, not at all. Uh, I mean, I haven't really flown much out of Jersey since, but mostly that's just down to the weather being so poor recently. Um, and obviously one of the aeroplanes I fly is now at the bottom of the sea. Um, but I have been flying light aircraft in the UK. I still fly part-time with, uh, with the RAF, so I've been back doing that. Um, I was back to work with my commercial um, uh, pilot's license straight away. Um, and I kind of sort of thought, well, it has been an emotional experience um, and it could happen again. You know, There's nothing to say that it won't happen again. Um, but I know that I can deal with it if some if that happened or something similar was to happen again you know i have that confidence that um it, this just wasn't a stroke of fortune this was something that we thought about in advance and that's why we got away with it
Thanks to Duncan Laney for talking with me today. And thank you for listening to the Bailiwick podcast. You can find the podcast on all the usual pod places. And don't forget to like and share. The music at the beginning and end of this podcast is I Shift My Weight by Luno. Tune in next week for more.